Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. everyone and welcome to the show i'm martin willis your host and uh we have a great one for you this evening i was uh, lucky enough to meet a really fine gentleman at the uh uap hearing i guess i always i always want to say ufo because that's what it is it's a ufo uap same thing uh anyway uh so i met keith uh in line early and the reason he was in line early is because he heard Chris Leto and I saying that we were going to get in line early. But anyway, he's a great guy. I can't wait to talk to him. He's really involved in uh, law enforcement and uh, got an interesting take on this whole subject. And I'm really looking forward to speak to him. Uh, the blog this week by Charles Lear is a 1976 British UFO and humanoid encounter with paranormal overtones. overtones. So uh, some sad news uh, just before the show. Last week, uh, James Fox, a good friend of James Fox and myself and many other people uh, in the UFO world and out of the UFO world, Huffington Post and so many other places and connections with this wonderful man, Lee Spiegel, uh, passed away just before uh, the show started last week. I uh, found out about it the uh, day after. Uh, love the guy. Uh, we were we became very close over the years. We're going to do something for Lee, a tribute. A whole bunch of us are getting together and uh, just showing you the type of humor that Lee had. Uh, so we're, we're getting together. I believe it's a tentative date of September 14th. We're going to use his regular time slot for Edge of Reality uh, radio show over at UNX uh, Radio. And that would be uh, 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern on September 14th. Right now, that is a tentative date. It should be a very good uh, tribute to him. Lots of people are going to be involved in that. And I will, uh, you know, tell everyone how to uh, be able to watch that live when that does happen. It's going to be on video and um, audio on the uh, station over there. So I just wanted to, uh, the last time Lee was on, I always loved his sense of humor. And he tells this story about um, the... UFO record album that he put out back in 1975. And uh, 
uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but I think I have it on the clip here. But uh, when he was putting that together, he tells a story of how that all came together. And he really did come to New York City to become a folk singer. He was He's very talented. I, he sent me some of his music. and uh, But this is what ended up happening. And uh, here's this little story about it. It's three minutes long. Here it goes. My phone rang and and I said, hello. And I heard this voice. He said, are you Lee Spiegel? I said, yes, I am. He said, this is Ralph Blum. Who the hell are you? And how the hell did you get my mail? <laughs> I'm thinking, am I in trouble here? <laughs> Did I did I not make the right decision? Uh, my father loved what I did. What I did. <laughs> but Ralph said, well, "What do you want?" And I, I I told him my idea, and he said, well, "Okay, let's meet." And from that point on, we became friends. And he had connections. Their book that you just showed was published by Bantam Books. And, and so he knew all the people in publishing and production and marketing at Bantam. And he had friends, and I had some friends in the recording industry. So we worked it out to do a pitch to the people at CBS of the idea of letting me, with Ralph's help, contact all these people that were in his book. He gave me all their contact information so that I could start calling them and ask them if they would be interested in having me come to visit them wherever they were in the country and interview them for a vinyl documentary recording that I was going to produce for CBS. And people said, sure. And we worked out the deal so that uh, if, if they bought the record album, from the TV commercial we ended up having for it. Uh, if you didn't like the album or the eight-track tape, well, okay, you could send the album back to us, but keep the book, keep the Ralph Blum book as our gift. <laughs> How about you know? that? Yeah. <clears throat> you, don't, you don't see much of that kind of stuff anymore. No, no. But it was the first yeah. time, uh, it kind of became an instant classic in, in ufology. It was the first time that a major recording company like CBS offered a UFO product to the public. It was the first time that a UFO documentary uh, was presented on TV in a two-minute infomercial. Um, and it was one of the first UFO products that Dr. J. Allen Hynek chose that was offered for sale in the renowned Edmund Scientific Catalog at the time. And so he chose a variety of things, like best books he liked, best slideshows, and mine was the only record that was offered. And it was like, wow. Uh, it was it just, I couldn't believe my luck of getting that far uh, so quickly. And so, okay, I came to New York with a guitar, looking for a record contract, and I finally got a record contract, but it had <laughs> nothing to do with folk singing. It was about chasing extraterrestrials. Go figure. <laughs> Anyway, our good friend Lee, uh, may he rest in peace. And uh, so remember, uh, September 14th, that's what the tentative date looks like. It's going to be a really nice tribute uh, with a lot of people involved. So stay tuned for that. And one other thing, I'm going to be at uh, MUFON, this symposium this coming weekend. So if you happen to be there and you want to look me up, uh-oh, our guest just went away. <laughs> 
Uh oh. Uh, hopefully he'll be right back in. So if you want to look me up, uh, I do have a podcast UFO hat. I might wear that, but uh, most of the time I probably won't be. But uh, you can always email me if you're there at the symposium, martin at podcastufo.com. Here's our guest. Welcome, Keith. Thank you. I Glad saw you disappear. Here. Where did you go? <laughs> you my 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 daughter called me on the on, on this on the phone, the iPhone, and it disconnected us. So I told her Uh-oh. stop calling me since we're in the same house. Wow, so you're using happened. an iPhone right now? Yes, I am. Oh my goodness, how clear is that? That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing how far that technology has come. Well, thank you so much. It was a real. I I knew. I felt a kinship right away when we met early in the morning in line on uh, July, uh, was it August? What? July, no, it was July 26th. July 26th, yeah. that's right, Wednesday. Yeah, yeah that was really and, something. And, and the story yeah. I'd love to tell, Martin, is how I was watching you and Chris Leto the evening before the hearing, talking, of, you were in D.C., both in D.C., and you were talking about how you were expecting a large group to show up and how you guys were going to get there early. And I had already had my ticket bought and it was supposed to arrive supposed to arrive at 6 30. and i said wait a second i'm gonna be late i better get a couple hours or earlier so i arrived at 3 30 in dc and because of that i was able to catch up with you and, and the other folks who were there early and eventually get a seat we didn't know there were only going to be 30 seats available i and, know, you know well I, I heard that the day before but i said that can't be right you know, and it was just amazing how the line kept morphing and changing and new people were coming in and strange people we didn't see. They certainly weren't there at five in the morning. <laughs> yeah. They infilled, and, yeah. And while we were standing online, you see Representative Burchette walk yeah, by. That's right. Able to get a, a, and uh, of course, uh, Randall Nickerson was also there. He was the first person online. Yeah. So it was it was amazing to see all these folks who are pretty famous in, yeah. in, in this whole effort uh, there in the flesh. Yeah. And so I, I and then I saw you and I knew you from your podcast, obviously, and all the folks that you've interviewed. And and, uh, and so I think that's one of the reasons why we hit it off. I was more of what they call, I think, these days a fanboy. And I was just <laughs> like, oh, can I take a picture with you? Well, now I'm a fan of yours after uh, looking at all that you uh, are looking to do and did. Why don't we talk about, uh, you're involved, you have a very uh, major involvement with law enforcement over the years, and uh, you you are looking to see if how these encounters are treated. And uh, well, right off the bat, before we go into all that, how did you feel, we haven't really talked about it, but how did you feel the hearing went? How did you feel they were treated? I think it went tremendously well. I think the point of the hearing, it was for the general public's consumption, for the general public to become familiar with some of the issues that we're gonna be dealing with in the future. And so by having these witnesses and especially the whistleblowers speak to the the seriousness of of, uh, the validity of the things that he has encountered and has reported to Congress and to the uh, ICIG and DODIG's offices. It, it, it was really an important day. It was what I think in my head, a historic day. And I was there 
like everyone else, to witness history. And what was that history? It was, if you haven't seen that uh, video of that hearing, go see it, because there's so much information that's covered very quickly in fleeting questions that each of the Congress people is able to sort of get out within that very limited amount of time. Everything from crash retrievals to, um, to, to bodies, biologics, and there were many different things that were discussed. The most important takeaway is that we have uh, a, a lot of ground to cover in exposing a decades-long um, cover-up of, of, of huge proportions regarding financial, uh, financial uh, uh, crimes and, yeah. by the way, non-human intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think one of the hooks in this whole thing that keeps people like Burchett motivated to keep pushing along is the financial part of it. You know, that is like, hey, this money is going. We don't know where this money's going. There's a lot of there's billions of dollars a year that just can't be found that get lost somehow. You know where what's going on and. In, in that case, there has to be accountability. And, uh, you know, and I don't know, you know, I've heard, I don't know for sure, but I have heard rumors that he's, that they're not uh, too keen on putting together another hearing. Have you uh, yeah, I think, I think at the uh, House level, I don't, I don't think that there's uh, <clears throat> the political will from the leadership of the House to go further with this conversation. I think that we're going to have to hope that the Senate comes through with their hearings that hopefully they'll be uh, uh, starting that next month. Um, but regardless of whether it is something that happens immediately or if it's rolled out over the next few months and years, <clears throat> this is something that's not going away. Uh, this is very much a reality in terms of the UAP issue and the massive cover-up. and. Uh, some of the crimes that were committed by rogue elements within government to keep this a secret from the general public. So um, my stance is let's 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 get to it. Let's get prepared. I'm a I'm an emergency planner, public safety, law enforcement. Let's not wait to react. Let's start getting prepared for whatever it is that we're going to have to deal with with, with recognizing. This, this, this NHI um, dealing with the general public in, in a much more rational way around NHI contact, sightings, abductions, and, and uh, really just understanding that just because we know more about the reality of our world and our universe doesn't mean that it's unbelievable. It's simply just knowing something new. And, and we will we will accept it eventually and we will adapt to it, whatever it is. So let's talk about you. Uh, what, I mean, how long have you felt this way, first of all? And then let's talk a little bit about your background and what made you actually pay attention to the UFO world? Sure. I, I started as a police officer back in the early 90s. And I was fortunate enough to work with some really great people in different capacities. I was 
the undercover narcotics officer, as an internal affairs supervisor, uh, policy uh, and budget analyst within the police department, and uh, and I also missing person squad during 9-11, which was a very uh, difficult uh, oh, boy. assignment, yeah. of course. Uh, yeah. Worked with some really incredible people to bring honor uh, to, to those who have fallen and, uh, and got help from all over the country. It was an amazing time of the country coming together yes. uh, with a singular purpose and mm -hmm. also an acknowledgement by the federal government that they needed to change the way they did business. You saw intelligence, the relationships between the agencies had to change and did in the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, one of the things that they focused on was providing training to local and state first responders on dealing with weapons and mass destruction attacks. Our focus was on making certain that not only did we have the general public's help through campaigns like See Something, Say Something, but that our officers and other first responders had the equipment necessary to deal with those um, very rare encounters, which could have very high consequences. So those uh, WMD uh, attacks that we were worried about, the dirty bombs, and the biological the anthrax attacks and yeah. everything in between. And so I was fortunate enough to get trained uh, within the NYPD working for their SWAT slash heavy rescue team uh, to, to deal with those types of situations, as well as medical emergencies and water emergencies and high angle rope rescue emergencies. Their emergency service unit is, uh, is a very special unit prepared for everything under military attack anything underneath the military attack that's what the emergency service unit uh, deals with and so um i would train out places like dugway and the nevada test site and the aniston uh, former chemical uh factory chemical army depot and and that training was to prepare me for dealing with some very hopefully unlikely situations but possible. So with all of that uh, WMD training, it was not a difficult thing for me to understand the possibility of there being something other than what we understand here on this earth, uh, encounter, you know, dealing with, with people. Um, what I never really did was I never thought about it. I, I was sort of agnostic. It wasn't until 2017, the New York Times article, yeah. Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Keen. Uh, and, and even then, I was really not so inclined to think about it until uh, 2020, you had the phenomenon by James Fox, and you had uh, Rambler Nickerson's The Aerial Phenomenon, and then James yeah. Fox, again, Moment of Contact. That's when I really started to sort of hone in on this and realize that uh, not only is it just compelling individuals with compelling stories of some unusual situations, but that this was something that was becoming, um, it, it just sort of dawned on me that, hey, I'm in law enforcement. What are we doing about this? Then going and seeing David Grush speak uh, and understanding that there's a lot more than simply him speaking, him dealing with Congress and, and getting 40 witnesses to uh, to attest to what he uh, found out 
uh, firsthand witnesses to non-human craft and bodies. That that was really sort of an, an amazing, uh, amazing revelation to actually hear him say that under oath after yeah. watching him say it on TV. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to address address that while you just said that because I'm going to put this comment up and there's a couple uh, or at least one or under there similar. Um, so uh, Flapjack says I feel Grush is similar to Lazar. Their stories line up with some things we know, but still we don't have anything concrete. It would all be which would be nice. We have videos, etc. But show me the UFO, and I understand that thinking. Yeah, we do want to see the nuts and bolts. But I mean, should that mean that David Grush should have stayed quiet about this? Uh, and and then uh, later on down here, uh, this person says, uh, "Yes, Grush and Lazar are the same. Ridiculous." Now, I'd like to I'd like to address that because there is a huge difference, in my opinion, between Bob Lazar yes. and David Grush. Uh, yeah. David Grush went under oath. He's risking everything. He's he's you know he could go to jail. If he's found out that he's lying, um, you know, maybe the, the claims are, are extraordinary. And I understand, like, you have to be skeptic when the claims are like that. We'd really like to, as Alejandro, my friend, says, we'd like to see the receipts. Of course we would. Um, but this is cracking the door open. This is just my opinion. But uh, letting it be known that, uh, you know, to the people out there that uh, please do come forward Let's hear the first-hand experiencers. Um, that's what I'm hoping comes out of this whole thing. Yeah, you know, I, I have so much to say, and I know we only have a few minutes together, but the first thing I want to say is we, you and I and everybody listening, is we live in an unclassified world. And what we are talking about is classified things. And none of us can speak to the veracity of any claims that someone from the classified world is saying we just have to be patient and let the investigative process go through. So rather than waste time deter, you know, trying to figure out if, if it's true or not, let's let the authorities actually go through the process that was just created. There was no whistleblower process for this kind of information right. until very yeah. recently. And so David Crush is what you call an honors broker or uh, a, a, a authentic uh, representative of the classified world. So we have to wait for the investigations of the classified allegations that he's made. And he's only been able to share with us the things that he's allowed to talk about. But you have to sort of key on a few things that this is, although he's talking to us for the first time, this has been an ongoing investigation with Congress and the appropriate investigative bodies for years. And if they, and if you listen closely to the leaders of the intel, you know, the various leaders that are out there, they are not, um, you know, disregarding the whole situation. They're just being coy because they have to. They have to wait for the investigation to complete. So for those who are saying, I want to see bodies and I want to see crap, we live in an unclassified world, and there's no guarantee we're ever going to be able to see classified stuff. But what we are going to be able to do is get some sort of confirmation as to the legitimacy of what he's talking about. And, and frankly, everything that I've read and heard and seen is, leads me to, to believe that you know, we have a lot more uh, that we're going to be experiencing in the not-too-distant future regarding this. 
I hope so. And I, I worry that, you know, and maybe it's a false worry, but I worry that uh, the umbrella of classified can be overused in a situation. I do understand when it comes to national security, there are things that should not be out there because our adversaries, you know, could use it against us. I understand that totally. But what I'm afraid of is that, you know, we may end up knowing very little of the classified part of this. If a firsthand witness comes forward, if they can only speak in a classified environment, how are we going to get that relayed to us and by whom? You know, I mean, would it be through another hearing type of situation or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that uh, we've been experiencing experiencing it, particularly within the last few years, by looking at what former elected officials have been saying, by looking at uh, the legislation that's being, being passed or has been passed, by the fact that investigations have been ongoing for years about this issue, and the fact that you have a whistleblower that has come out the first, but the first of many, talking about some incredibly fantastical claims that are fantastical because they challenge our worldview, they challenge our ideas about reality, about physics, about science, about uh, our origins, about so many different aspects that it is a whole lot to, to sort of take in. And I understand the resistance to that because when you say, oh, there's, there's they, they, they exist, well, then there are a bunch of other questions that follow. Yes. And that's what I think, you know, the Robertson panel in the 50s and the Rand Corporation yeah. study and all the other things that have sort of gauged the public's ability to handle this information. I think that's where they were coming from, plus the fact that there was a Cold War going on and so many different things that sort of helped prevent us from progressing as a society with this understanding that there are more, there's more to the world than what we know. Now, it's simply more to the world than what we are allowed to know. And so all that anger, frustration should not be directed to whistleblowers, should be directed to the rogue elements within government that have been keeping and are keeping these secrets away from us and also secrets of crimes. Yes, yes. And there's, uh, there's parallels there. So I'm just putting this up here because just to remind uh, the listeners. So uh, Jonathan Wigan coming up on September 5th. So far it's a go. I've asked, uh, um, there's, there's a lot of people that are contacting me about this particular guest coming up. And uh, all I ask is that no one try to reach him, uh, respect his, his privacy. Um, and the last thing I want is for someone to contact him now and somehow make him uneasy to do the interview, which is coming up, um, what, in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, just in a couple of weeks. So anyway, um, I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be an interesting one. Um, anyone that's seen his old uh, 2001 or three, whatever it is, interview um, will uh, understand why I'm excited about that guest. Well, if I may, yeah, we we look at you know I'm very new to this whole UFO community, but very impassioned about it. The, the, they, there's so much documentation, so many historical accounts, 
on pictures and videos and it's online places like ufob and eyes on cinema where you can see police officers and others who have had to deal with these incidents and uh, encounters of all different types of encounters from sightings to okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To uh, abductions. Uh, but, but what we are doing is we are simply looking at the tip of the iceberg. Because of the stigma, because there's no infrastructure for report, no formal infrastructure, there are, of course, voluntary efforts, longstanding and heroic, but they are still not a part of the official record. So we don't have data for scientists to review. And so out of the numbers of incidents that have occurred, I would think that there have been many, many times that where people have been afraid to discuss it. In both on the military side and also in private uh, private sector, just local communities afraid to talk about these things because they see what happens to people who do talk about it. That's right. And and, and for that matter, we are seventy percent as a as a, a world. We are seventy percent covered by water. People don't live on seventy percent of the planet, so yes. we have no idea of the frequency of encounter of, of incidents. That are occurring with our world, with uh, entities that, that are maybe coming from other places. Now, the government does, and you know, to the extent that they're able to tell the truth, and I think, I think that it's time, and I think, frankly, that the not just the American public but the, the world is ready for acknowledgement of what they suspect, suspected, and documented themselves over many generations. Yes. Yes. Uh, we were talking just a second ago there about uh, law enforcement, and I wanted to uh, share this. This incident uh, was uh, also uh, my good friend Lee Spiegel was very much involved with this particular case, and uh, it's really fascinating. Uh, this happened in Lumberton, North Carolina, and uh, many people have heard Lee talk about it, but this involved a, a lot. Uh, I think there was up to 30 policemen when this encounter happened and uh, back in 1975. And a triangle UFO basically floated right over, right over the group of them and then shot this light beam down right in the middle of them. And uh, yeah, it was quite, it's quite a story. That blog's up on, we uh, just reissued that blog. Here's some paperwork on it. But uh, check that out on podcastufo.com as well. Uh, this It was just reposted last week. But another interesting sighting. And I would like to talk to you about, uh, you know, historic uh, police encounters. There's a lot of them. I'm sure you've looked into them. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I did ask a website, uh, a YouTube, uh, UFOB, if they could create a channel just for UFOs and police. And they did. And right now there are 27 well-known cases that they've placed everything from Zamora out in New Mexico yeah. to the Exeter, New Hampshire incident. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, 
you know, um, all over the country, and they have not just over the United States, but all over the, the you know, Europe as well. The Belgium case, where you've got people, yep. multiple officers, the, the 2000 uh, St. Clair County, Illinois police sighting case, where they're chasing the thing over multiple counties. You hear yeah. dispatch handing off the job from one county to the other. And, and so it all leads to this conclusion that there have been many encounters, but for the, from the part of the government, they have not given first responders the tools, the education, the training, the equipment that they would need in order to look to uh, prevent negative encounters from occurring. So public safety being at the, at the forefront of what law enforcement and other first responders should do, that would mean that they, you know, whatever the government knows and whatever equipment they have that can help develop best practices for for first responders that are answering the 911 calls from the general public to respond to these incidents, we need to develop those practices and, and, and policies and training and education as a country. It may be, be a model for the rest of the world to, to allow officers to not just be victims when they get to the scene and whatever the anomalous phenomenon exists is happening, that they then become uh, victims as well. And, you know, you go through the historical record, you could see uh, officers getting injured and killed. The George Wheeler case in uh, Pierce County, Wisconsin, 1976. Right. He got, uh, I guess you could call it irradiated. Uh, I think that car is still, that car still lives somewhere in a, and uh, you're, you're you're talking about the Val Johnson. Oh yes, uh, you're right. I can see 79 Marshall yep. County, you're right. Minnesota. Yeah, yeah where right. he yeah. he lost time the whole thing. Right. Um, so we have documentation. We have evidence of the symptoms of this. We have documentation of the physical injuries that that individuals have had when they've encountered whatever it is that they're encountering, whether it's electromagnetic radiation or some other microwave, I don't know. I'm not a scientist, that's not my lane. I'm just a first responder, public safety, emergency planner. And what I see that should be the impetus of uh, agencies like Department of Homeland Security and, and our law enforcement leaders is, what are we gonna do now that we know that this information exists? How are we going to help our first responders? Certainly, we can't continue stigma and uh, yeah. you know ridicule, and, and then you know basically uh, having a, a psych, psych exam, perhaps for those that uh, are simply telling the truth with what they've encountered. Now, let me ask you this: Prior to 2017, uh, did you give much thought to the topic, or? If you did, did you just kind of pass it off as nothing? Never gave any any thought to the topic. And I was going to all these places, doing the training. Uh, again, Dugway, Proving Grounds, do the bio training and, and Nevada test site. And I had not a clue. As a matter of fact, I even trained for, uh, I trained emergency responders in uh, what they call uh, National Incident Management System, ICS. Incident mm -hmm. Command System. I taught that to municipalities throughout the country. 
never even, you know, gave, gave it a, a second thought that the company I worked for, SAIC, had some sort of connection, a possible connection to this, uh, you know, NHI and, and, and re-engineering, uh, you know, technology not from this, this earth. So, um, you know, wow. it's, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, this is in the 1990s, 2000s, rather 2000s into the early 2010s. So, so that, all those things, you know, I was just like everybody else, no interest, not, not really concerned. But now I am concerned because what I did about two months ago, I just did an informal survey. I reached out to all the state police. And I just sent them emails inquiring and also the top five police departments in all the all the states and just ask them, you know, what, what do you have in terms of policies or procedures dealing with uh, sightings or, or contacts or, or, or abductions? And the answer was uniformly, no, nothing. We don't have anything relevant to what you're speaking about. And mm -hmm. that's what I expected. And I only I got 25 percent response. But that's what I expected. Small agencies to large, they're they're not focused on this, and they may be waiting, perhaps from direction and guidance from Homeland Security or Defense Department. That that I think would be the logical thing for them to do. But as far as I'm concerned, we need to, you know, uh, collectively start putting our heads together and and thinking about how we can better address uh, this issue. And there are a couple of, it, of organizations that have developed to try and deal with the issue. UAP Med uh, is UAP-Med is one of those agent uh, organizations oh, yes. where they're yeah. trying to coalesce and, and, and get uh, those in the medical and mental health community to uh, help uh, better the, the resources and, and better the uh, efforts of those in that community to help deal with this issue. They don't provide, uh, you know, medical or, or mental health services themselves, but they help to uh, coordinate and, and, and get those uh, those efforts to help uh, those who need those services to get that treatment that they need. And I know that they have a, a web presence, uap-med-med. And, and I know that they are also interested in getting those in the medical and mental health community to uh, to to work with them and, and to to get uh, some concrete best practices on how best to address the issues of um, of uh, everything from contacts to those who have been abducted and and how uh, that that how that discipline how those disciplines can can more appropriately deal with those issues. Um, and I know Ted Rowe is the, uh, the person who founded that organization. He also was instrumental in starting AIAA, which people know because of pilot Ryan Graves, who's, who's uh, a part of that. Yeah. And they're, they're again focused on public safety. You know, folks are flying these planes, commercial flights, military flights, and they're dealing with stuff they don't understand that they're encountering. And if they are not getting any kind of, uh, uh, you know, helpful feedback from those who are responsible for their well-being, then they are rightfully, they should rightfully be concerned and, and moving to change that. 
Yeah. So I, uh, the other thing that the that one of there's an organization that started UAP that that PD uh, some individuals out in New Mexico officers in New Mexico who have created an organization to help officers who have had encounters and they are absolutely not going to talk to their colleagues or to you know family members or to anybody else about it because they're concerned about the the negative consequences of doing so and so UAP. PD was set up to sort of help them uh, tell their stories in a, in a safe way uh, that, that does not uh, will not cause them any uh, repercussions in a negative light. Yeah. So uh, th those are those are two uh, really important efforts. But ultimately, we're we're going to need uh, those who are responsible in uh, in, in our government to create processes for reporting, uh, guidance for uh, those stakeholders who are responsible for responding to the general public uh, to, to deal with those, uh, those issues. And, and, and then we will have a way for scientists to get reliable data that is, uh, that, that is, uh, is transparent and, and, and is, uh, is uniform and uh, covers not just certain areas, but covers the entire country. And, and so that we can actually, from that data, perhaps get some, some headway. Now, I had heard at one time that police stations all around the country were given, uh, you know, MUFON's phone number and uh, also the one Pete in Davenport NICAP was given both of those phone numbers. And, you know, when I, I didn't know when I had my encounter in 2007, I had no idea what to do. And the first thing that I thought to do was I'm going to call the police. I had no idea there was anything online or anything like that. So when I called the police department, I said, this is not an emergency, but you know, there is this craft that just is flying right now toward Monterey. And I want to know, do other people see it? You know, and she said, what is it? I said, well, it was a round disc. And, you know, I guess it's a UFO. I don't, you know, and so then she was totally sarcastic and she never said anything. She just put me on hold for about 20 minutes and I finally hung up and gave up. And but um, so that that was, uh, I would say, probably a typical reaction. I would think the, uh, a police department or dispatcher may, uh, you know, treat someone like i'm not sure well let's look at what the guidance or directives they're given um you know the 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 uh, national ufo reporting center started in 1974 they've covered perhaps 150,000 sightings since that time calls that they've gotten from the general public uh referred to by 911 dispatch as well as law enforcement but uh they don't go out to conduct investigations. They don't have any ability or resources to do that. So they're making the call, and where does it go? Well, it's, it's with Newport. And then you have the, the MUFON, which was started in 1969, and they do have field investigators. They have a training program, 4,000 active members, 600 field investigators, uh, and they, they work to, to uh, filter out you know, hoaxes in, from the uh, calls that they get, but that is still uh, a private effort. Uh, and then, then for, for pilots, 
you have the National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomena. NARCAP started in 1999, civilian reporting center focusing on aviation-related UAP incidents only. So you have those two major uh, uh, private efforts, voluntary efforts, and then and then you have also the uh, NARCAP, which is the, the yeah. aviation version of it. When when FAA, the guides that they have, direct pilots who encounter any kind of public safety issues or property damage from UAP encounters to contact the local police department once they land. Now, I just told you my informal survey shows that there's nothing that law enforcement has to deal with UAP encounters. And so mm -hmm. when you look at the private efforts, where do they connect to in terms of government? And if there's no way for government to accurately account for all of these uh, incidents that are being reported, then how, how are we able to get data that's reliable enough for scientists to work on? And so right. all of that needs to change. And, and, and government in whatever capacity it's going to do it, I would probably think Homeland Security, uh, but it may be some other agency or agencies uh, mm -hmm. where, where they're able to uh, get a reliable uh, reporting system that includes utilizing the first responders, uh, utilizing the commercial and the, the military pilots. I know the military is, is working on, uh, you know, they've got their own uh, reporting system that they're putting together. But all of this has to be uh, not just uh, done in a, in, a, in a formal way through government oversight and control, but it has to be collected and then shared with the general public, just as we do with crimes that occur every day with the FBI, uh, UCR reporting system. Uh, we need to have similar types of systems in place so we can understand the frequency of, of these events actually occurring. Right. Because we don't, we, don't, we don't know. We have not a clue. I bet you there's uh, people in the government that are paying attention to this that would just hope the whole thing would go away. You know, yes. somehow, like you mentioned, the Robertson panel, that was that effort back then. You know, maybe there's, uh, you know, we'll see what efforts are upcoming. Here's a question for you, as uh, Dr. Richard asks, as a detective, do you think that visitors ever plant evidence to mislead UFO investigators? Interesting. Uh, the, 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 the real the real answer, the only answer I give is I have not a clue. And <laughs> it relates to what I just said about there not being an official governmental accounting for these uh, these encounters. But can I say that all the thousands of people, thousands, tens of thousands of, of people, the hundreds of thousands of reports that have occurred over the last 70 decades, that all of those individuals are making it up or having some sort of mental health crisis yeah or you know some other you know seeing a a, a prosaic uh, you know, weather or, or balloon or some other excuse certainly much in the air is can be explained prosaically maybe 95 yeah. percent of it or more but that's not what we're talking about we're talking about that other percentage yeah where you have like the five observables. Yeah. And those are the things that 
our government, the American government, has already uh, stated exists. So if you're looking for disclosure in a more formal way of having an elected leader come up to a podium and saying, you know, well, they're out there, you know, we've had encounters. Well, yeah, that, that's fine, but I, you don't have to wait for that. You already had Defense Department uh, leadership state through their uh, through their uh, encounters with news media that that yes they do exist the reports that they've created uh, within the last few years have stated that there are things that exist uh, and, and what I heard somebody say recently that I thought was really um, relevant was that we don't have to say UAP unidentified it's simply that the government will not tell us what they are, that they do know what they are, but they're refusing to let us know. So they will call it unidentified. But whatever these, you know, anomalous things are, um, and, and again, I have not a clue. I'm just a civilian activist, like many out there that may be watching this. And so I don't have any more information than anyone else about UAP, but I have a lot of information about law enforcement. And I think as we get more and more people from the various disciplines that historically have created a lot of stigma around the pursuit of, of this topic, as long as, as we have more and more credible people coming out and stating that this is something that we need to focus on as a society, I think it's going to sort of break away at that wall of stigma that does not allow many people in this country to seriously consider even talking about it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I know this is the case because of family members, friends, I, I don't talk to them about it unless they ask me because of this stigma that exists where, uh, you know, they will not understand what I'm saying or they'll think that I'm joking or that it's, uh, you know, some sort of craziness. Yeah. So yeah. it is what it is. Right. Um, I, in my professional world, um, I have, uh, as a, as a fine art appraiser, antiques appraiser, something like that, I very, I always try to like be professional and be careful about talking about this subject. But I, I know I sent you a text today about how this happened last week. I was in a house down on uh, Cape Cod and the woman had some beautiful artwork, plus she had some really uh, unusual glass. She's an artist herself and did these glass sculptures that were fantastic. And all of a sudden she says to me, you know, I think if aliens are visiting us, they're gonna think these glass sculptures are interesting. <laughs> so it kind of opened the door for me to, I said, it's funny you should say that. Um, did you hear about the hearing that happened uh, recently she goes i watched the whole thing i was glued to my seat and i said i was there so you know we got into this great conversation now she's a mathematician that uh, worked consulting through all these companies a brilliant brilliant lady and her husband is also and they both were very intrigued and i i think it's a great time because these people on all in all walks of life and all types of uh jobs that they did or do or whatever all are, are taking a look now. It's getting, you know, if anything, you know, if everything else fails, at least we have people paying attention to it. 
Well, what we really need to pay attention to uh, collectively are efforts to dissuade us or divert us from talking about this issue. Uh, I am concerned that those same uh, rogue elements in government and private industry that are responsible for us getting to this point of not knowing much or if anything about this, that they're still pretty much doing what they're doing. And when I saw what happened with uh, Mr. Grush, Grush, uh, Grush regarding, yeah. regarding mm -hmm. the police reports, the yes. specific police reports, certainly they were quote unquote publicly available, but uh, there was some a little help from, you know, folks within IC or DOD to help guide that reporter to that, those specific, uh, you know, documents. Yeah, those specific dates and places, because supposedly the name would have been redacted. They wouldn't have availability to that. So they had and, to know the incidents. And it, I don't even think it was to embarrass him because he had already warned in the hearing that it was going to happen. What I think and what most people, you know, rationally speaking would think is that it's a message to any future whistleblowers to yes. discourage them. That's what I, that's the very, very, very first thing I said. I said, this has one goal, and that is to discourage anyone else from coming forward. When I so, first saw that, and so I felt that, I felt that all along. I sent that out to Ross Colhart immediately and uh, Bryce Zabel, and, uh, and so, just my so thoughts I, on it, you know. What I do for folks that are not ready to talk about uh, non-human intelligence, don't think about it. Just think about it as a big scandal for, uh, involving a lot of money, rogue program, program yeah. spending Congress wasn't even aware of. And so that's like government going wrong. And so if you think of it as a big scandal and don't think about the, the, the non-human intelligence, then you're not going to be affected when people try to distract you talking about little green men right? or, or surveying their, their constituents about, do you think that... Uh, uh, you know, looking into little green men is a waste of time. No, forget that. Just follow the money. That's that's what exactly right. Should that's be worried they, about. That's what they'll get. Where they'll get their answers. The time flew by. I knew it would. Thank you yes. so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. My and, uh, pleasure. Hope to have you back one day. Thank you. I look All forward right. to it. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, everyone. So we'll be back next week. And I don't know with who I'm going to be at the MUFON Symposium. I'm going to pick someone out and do a show or a couple of people out and do a show together. We'll see what happens. Uh, so we'll see you then next week. Remember to keep your eyes to the sky. <laughs>